Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the life of Jacob, and here James Jordan is going to be in Genesis chapter 43, verses 11 through 25. We do invite you to check out those links in the show notes, particularly our YouTube channel. This week, we completed our series on the book of James with Rich Lusk, and we also posted two psalm chant videos this week. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing the life of Jacob and Joseph in Genesis chapter 43, verses 11 through 25. We are still in chapter 43, or I suppose we'll be for a, a bit longer. And I guess we better just read what we looked at last week as a review and then plow in. Chapter 43, verse 1. And the famine was heavy in the land. Remember, we know the famine's going to last seven years, but Jacob and his family don't know that. They didn't know they were going to have to go back to Egypt for more food. Up to this point, the only reason they would have gone back to Egypt would be to rescue Simeon. And Jacob wouldn't let them do that because the rescue of Simeon means taking Benjamin down there. And so Jacob won't let Benjamin go. And so Simeon is stuck in prison down in Egypt. Now, however, God turns up the heat. Now they're hungry again. They and the hundreds of men servants and female servants and donkeys and camels and everybody else in their sheikdom are getting hungry. So now they're going to have to go back down to Egypt and they can hope that taking Benjamin along won't be too dangerous and they can rescue Simeon and get grain and everything. So... We're told this here at the beginning as the introduction. The famine was heavy in the land, and it came to pass when they'd finished eating the rations that they had brought from Egypt that their father said to them, Return, buy us some food rations. And I'll remind you again, that's probably not what he said or not all he said. This is the beginning of a long conversation that's summarized here. So I don't think he just said, Return, buy us some food rations out of the clear blue sky. This is part of the conversation, and it's summarized, and he may have said that precise sentence in the course of it. But now Judah tells him things. Judah said to him, The man warned us, yes, warned us, saying, You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you wish to send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you some food rations. But if you do not wish to send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. So now we're back to the same problem. Before, it was you've got to take Benjamin back down there to rescue Simeon. But now we learn, Judah says, it was also this. We can't go down there at all without Benjamin. Rescue Simeon or not, he's not even going to see us. And we learn later on that that's true, although that wasn't told us in the preceding story. So we learn a bit more that the threat is more dire than we thought. And Israel said... Why did you deal so ill with me by telling the man that you have another brother? Again, that's almost unquestionably summarizing a longer statement there. What is this about? Why did you tell him that you have another brother? Well, what we read before was they volunteered the information because they were afraid. Now they say, the man asked, he asked about us and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? 
So we told him according to these words. How could we know? How could we know that he would say, bring your brother down? Now, this is also true. I think we can be sure in the previous chapter we don't have everything that was said. But now they're adding more information that this man inquired when he heard about another brother. He started asking all these questions. And how could we know that he'd want to see the brother? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die. Remember, that's our theme, both these chapters, live and not die. Do this and live. Life and death, death and resurrection are main themes in this section. Because what happened to Joseph in the fact that he went through death and resurrection twice is now going to be applied to everybody else. Joseph goes into the pit, comes out into Potiphar's house, and he goes into prison, comes out into Pharaoh's house. Now that's going to be applied. And so everybody else is going to go through death and resurrection too. Judah says in verse 9, I will act as his pledge at my hand. You may seek him. If I don't bring him back to you and set him in your presence, I will be culpable for sin against you in all the days to come. Indeed, had we not lingered, we would indeed have been back twice already. Judah's offer begins the turning point here, as we've said countless times. This whole section of Genesis is not just about Joseph. It's about Joseph and Judah. And that's why we start off with Joseph being sold into slavery, and then we have the story of Judah and Tamar, and now Judah is the one who makes this sacrificial offer and says that he's willing to die in the sense that all the other deaths are in this passage. So we'll see, he volunteers to be a slave, he volunteers to go to prison. Those are all the pictures of death here. He offers to die for his brother. And that's what they didn't do with Joseph. They killed Joseph. Now Judah is willing to die rather than have Joseph's brother suffer. So that's a change, and that's the kind of change that we need to see. So now we can move back into the narrative where we left off last week. Yes, it was Simeon and Levi. They were the two. Although our guess was at the time... Of course, Joseph didn't know about the Tamar incident. Simeon was selected to stay in prison, partly because Joseph heard Reuben, who was the oldest, say, this wasn't my fault, I tried to rescue Joseph. So he's not likely to pick Reuben, since Reuben had acted responsibly. And Joseph didn't know that either, but when he heard it, he would act in terms of it. And also, Simeon is Leah's second-born child, and he's being held because... The ransom for him is Rachel's second-born child, Benjamin. And so there's something of a match there. But yeah, Simeon and Levi are the two worst sons at this point. Well, in our chiastic structure from a couple of weeks ago, way back when, we know that the next thing that's going to happen is that gifts are sent to Joseph, and then at the end of the story, as the brothers return to their father, gifts are sent from Joseph back to his father. So we're leaving now. We're taking gifts with us. At the end, we will be given gifts and we'll come back. Those are the bookends of the story, sandwich of the story. And so let's read verses 11 to 15a, which is these gifts. Yisrael, their father, said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the produce of the land in your vessels, 
and bring them down to the man as a gift. A little balsam, a little honey, balm and laudanum, pistachio nuts and almonds, and silver two times over. Take in your hand. And the silver that was returned in the mouth of your packs, return in your hand. Perhaps it was an oversight. And as for your brother, take him. Arise, return to the man, and may El Shaddai give you mercy before the man, so that he releases your other brother to you, and Benjamin as well. And as for me, if I must be bereaved, I must be bereaved. And the men took this gift, silver twice over they took in their hand, and Benjamin as well. Well, let's look at this just a little bit. Israel's clan chief tells them to take these gifts. And there are seven things listed. The six gifts plus the silver make a sevenfold payment, which seem to be rather clear from the language here at the end of verse 11. A little balsam, a little honey, balm, laudanum, pistachio nuts, almonds, and silver two times over, take in your hand. So that's the list. Seven things. Three of these, the gums, tree gums, accompanied Joseph down to Egypt. That's in 37.25. I'll just remind you of that. We pointed it out at that time. They lifted up their eyes and saw, and behold, there was a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels carrying balm, balsam, and laudanum traveling to take them down to Egypt. Joseph goes down to Egypt. Joseph is like those things. Those are spices. They're associated, well, they're not spices. They're Rosins, and they're associated with healing and incense, and these are the kinds of things that Joseph is going to be. He's going down to heal Egypt. Now, these kinds of things are going down as well. I think that the connection here is that they accompany the brothers who are also going not only to Egypt, but they're going under duress like Joseph, and they'll be threatened with a form of slavery. Just to unpack that, Joseph didn't volunteer to go down to Egypt. He was forced to go down there. And these guys don't want to go to Egypt either. The famine is forcing them to go down there. And Joseph goes down there and is accompanied by these things. And now the brothers go down there and they're accompanied by these things. So at least in part, this is to show us a parallel that the brothers are now going to have to go through what Joseph went through, including the kind of suffering and threats that Joseph experienced when he went down to Egypt. And I've got down here, perhaps we should also see a parallel with Benjamin, Joseph's brother, as Joseph went down accompanied by these spices, so now Benjamin goes down, but it's probably more all of them. Some of these things are never mentioned again in the Bible, or pistachio nuts anyway. It's the only place in the Bible that they're mentioned. But I think another Part of this is that we see something about the promised land. It's a land that produces all these really nice things, luxury goods. And the promise to return to a land that flows with milk and honey starts to be implied here. That the promised land is a land where there's all this really nice stuff. It's going to be a land of wheat, of figs and olives and wine, especially grapes and wine. Israel was a great wine-producing land in the ancient world, and it symbolizes giving peace to the nations. But also all this other 
really nice stuff as well. Be interesting someday to study this list, maybe and compare it to the leeks and melons and cucumbers and garlic that are associated with Egypt. Not that those are bad either, but these are slightly more luxurious goods here than cucumbers certainly are. Goodness gracious, who wants a cucumber when you can have pistachios and almonds and honey? No sane person would. At any rate, now garlic, yeah, but I don't know. Well, verses 13 and 14, As for your brother, take him, return to the man. If I must be bereaved, I must be bereaved. Here we have again this theme of death. Joseph, Jacob accepts the possibility of more death experiences. He loses his other son. I mean, that feels like death. You have a child die, you have your wife die, you have anybody that you're close to die, you know you experience death. And so this is more possibility of death. And all of this darkening and closing in that's going on here is going to be relieved, and we know that, but Jacob, Israel certainly doesn't know it at this point. And then he refers to God as Shaddai in verse 14. And that happens so seldom that we want to make notice of it when it does. El Shaddai. El means the mighty one. And El Shaddai, we don't know the meaning of the word Shaddai. The mighty one who is like a mountain. The mighty one who is over everything. It's translated as almighty or omnipotent. All ruler, pantocrator, in different languages. But theologically, El Shaddai is the mighty one who initiates the future. The name always occurs in connection with descendants who are going to come into the future. I spelled descendant wrong here. Should be D-A-N-T. Descendant, D-E-N-T, is an astronomical term having to do with the movement of the stars in the sky. And the name Yahweh, when it's explained in Exodus, is the name that means the God who keeps the promises that were made before. You can trust Yahweh because He's faithful and He keeps the promises. You can trust El Shaddai because He's all-powerful when He makes the promises. Now, if I make you a promise, there's only so much you can trust. If I promise to come by your house this afternoon and give you a book, well, you can pretty much rely on that, but you can't absolutely rely on it because something may come up. My car may break down. I may forget. I might get mad and just not do it. I mean, there's different things that can happen. But with God, because He's all-powerful, when God makes a promise, you can trust Him absolutely. And so this name occurs in promise contexts, and particularly in contexts that have to do with children. And God says that he is the God who will take care of children and take care of the future, which is pretty comforting. 17.1, when Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh was seen by Abraham and said to him, I am God Shaddai. And he says, I'll make you a multitude of nations and you will bear fruit and I will establish my covenant. And in fact, I want you to do circumcision as a sign that your children belong to me. You cut off part of your body that has to do with reproduction. And cutting off that part of the body is a way of saying, I cut off my children and give them to God. That's part of what it means. But he says, 
I am the God who initiates the future and takes care of children. In chapter 28, verse 3, when Isaac blesses Jacob the second time, when he blesses himself consciously, knowing who he is now, he says, May God Shaddai bless you, and may he make you bear fruit and make you many, so that you become an assembly of peoples, and may he give you the blessing of Abraham. Well, that's precisely right. (laughs) El Shaddai and the promise of a multitude is the blessing of Abraham. And so he gives this name, the God who initiates the future and promises to be with our children. And then it shows up again in 35.11, when God appears to Jacob after he comes back to Bethel, verse 11 of chapter 35, God said further to him, I am the mighty one Shaddai, bear fruit and be many nations, yes, a host of nations will come from you, Kings will go out from your loins. So every time this name has been used so far, it has to do with the promise that God is going to give children and he will take care of those children and he will be the father of those children. And so naturally this is the name that Jacob uses when he sends Benjamin off to Egypt. May the God who promises to take care of children Protect you and Benjamin when you go to Egypt. May God Shaddai, the God who has promised us children and promised to protect our children and promised to be the God of our children, may He give you mercy before the man so He releases your brother to you and Benjamin as well. It's the appropriate name to use. The God who cares for the future and cares for our children. I guess for completeness sake, We can glance at 48, verse 3, where the name comes up again. Jacob said to Joseph, God Shaddai was seen by me in Luz in the land of Canaan. He blessed me and he said to me, I will make you bear fruit and make you many and make you a host of peoples. And then in 49, 25, when he blesses Joseph, Jacob says, By your father's God, may he help you and Shaddai, may he give you blessing Blessing of the heavens, blessing of the sea, blessing of breasts and womb. Well, that's a little bit more vague. The association with children and seed isn't as prominent there, although it's implied if you read the entire thing, and we'll get to it in time. But Jacob is the one who has received this blessing. God gave this blessing to Abraham, said, I'll be the God of the future, and I'll be the God of your children. And he gave it to Jacob, and now Jacob... (laughs) is passing it on and counting on it. You have to do that when your kids leave home. Both of mine are gone, so I'm counting on God Shaddai. (laughs) That's what you have to do. The God who promises that He'll take care of your kids and snatch them back even if they wander away. So now, they go. And we know that God Shaddai is going to go with them. And that He's been working all this out behind the scenes by putting Joseph into this position and giving Joseph wisdom. Joseph has learned that you don't look to Pharaoh for deliverance. When he was in prison, he appealed to Pharaoh. Nothing happened. Now, he's going to teach these boys, these other sons, don't look to Egypt for deliverance. You can look to Egypt for grain, but only if you look first and foremost to God for everything. Only in that context is it legitimate to buy grain from the Egyptians and to look to Pharaoh for help. 
So it says, the men took this gift, verse 15. And commentators point out, and I think this is right, that they are not called the men up till now. They are the sons or the brothers. That's the language that's been used. But now as we move toward an encounter with the man, these brothers are called the men. You have to notice stuff like that. Because it's in verse 15, the men took this gift. Why doesn't it say Jacob's sons took this gift? Why doesn't it say the brothers took this gift? Verse 16, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house. Well, that's more understandable that they would be called men there. But it just starts to pile up. Verse 17, the man did, as Joseph had said, the man brought the men into Joseph's house, but the men were frightened. Why doesn't it say the brothers were frightened? Or Jacob's sons were frightened when they were brought into Joseph's house. Continually throughout here, they're called the men, and Joseph is called the man. That's deliberate. We can hear men and man is the same word, just singular and plural. In Hebrew, it's the same. You're hearing the same sounds. And so you're hearing that the skill of the author of this passage is to set this up. We don't know who we are. Joseph knows. But right now... We have the men, and we have the man, and there's a lot of tension here. And where this needs to move is they're all brothers. So one circle here for men and one circle here for man, and a tension between them, and then it moves to one circle, and they're all together as brothers. And of course, as we've said, this story is starting to show us something about social tension and conflict. They're alienated from their father. They're alienated from each other. These guys were fighting with each other when this story started out. And they're at odds with their father. And, of course, ultimately, they're at odds with God. And they're certainly at odds with Joseph. And the end is going to be full reconciliation. So that's what we're moving to. What kinds of things are involved in bringing reconciliation in society? And Joseph shows some wisdom here. Because now we have a society. We don't have just fathers and sons, just Abraham and Isaac anymore. There's a bunch of people here, and social issues start to come to the fore. So I think the men-man thing is important. It's part of the way this is written to bring out this theme. We don't know who we are. They're just men and man. And we have to find out who we are and become reunited. Well, the brothers are brought in, and they respond with fear. As we leave the story, way off in the end here, the brothers will be sent back without fear. In fact, Joseph will say, don't be afraid as they leave. But right now, they're afraid as they come in. That's in verse 15b to 18. They arose and went down to Egypt. Well, that's transitional for sure. And they stood in Joseph's presence. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house, slaughter some slaughter animals, and prepare them. It's literal translation we have here, see. For it is with me that these men shall eat at noon. The man did as Joseph has said. The man brought the men into Joseph's house. But the men were frightened that they had been brought into Joseph's house and said, It is because of the silver that was returned in our packs that we have been brought here. For them to roll over on us and fall on us. 
and take us into servitude along with our donkeys. That roll over on us is an idiom. I don't know that it needs to be explained. Imagine being overpowered. We have the same expression almost in English. If one group of men overpowers another, over is in that word. To come on top of and smush down and suppress. And so, I remember when I was in school, we used to say that if one guy beat up another, that he rolled him. Not that I was in a class of people where that went on a lot, but we'd say he went out and just rolled him. Kind of had the idea of beating up. So, roll over on us is what this says here, and that's the idiom. To gang up on us, fall on us, and take us into slavery along with our donkeys. I don't know why they bring up the donkeys here. But it probably just means they'll take every last thing we have. There's one other thing that I forgot to mention because it's not in my notes. But if you look back at verse 12. Sorry, I didn't do this at the right time. But when Israel sends them down, he sends them down with balsam, honey balm, laudanum, pistachio nuts, and almonds, and silver twice overtaken your hand. And the silver that was returned in the mouth of your packs returned in your hand. That implies that they're returning the silver from before, and they're also sending down twice as much, which means three times as much. So why would he do this? He says, take twice as much silver, and also take the silver that was returned. Because we learn from this that Jacob's got lots of money. Money's not the problem, but you can't eat money. So... He's able to send down twice as much silver this time, along with, seems to be implied, the silver that was sent down the first time. Why would he send down twice as much this time? Maybe to buy twice as much food, but what other reason might there be? Yeah, theft requires double restitution. And in case they are charged with theft, they can say, look, we're making double restitution to you, and plus we need to buy some more. So I think that that's implied here. He's being really careful. Take twice as much in case the man wants restitution because in such a mysterious way the silver came back. And again, I'll remind you, Jacob doesn't trust his sons. He doesn't just believe everything they say. He's stuck. They say they won't go back without Benjamin, and so he has no choice. But he's not sure who to believe here. And as far as he knows, they might have stolen the silver back themselves. Because he's had experience with them. They murdered all those men at Shechem, and he suspects they did Joseph in, and so he's making sure. Now we can go back. The men are frightened. Verses 15b to 16a, they stood in Joseph's presence, and Joseph saw Benjamin with them. He sees that they've kept his demands, so that is good for him. He's happy with that, and he sets up a fellowship meal, and this is grace But the brothers are not able to receive it as grace because they think evil is intended, because they know that they've been bad. And I've got something here that you might think about. Jesus' parable of the lost son, what we call the prodigal son, seems to allude to this event. Like the father who welcomes his wayward son back with a feast, so Joseph welcomes his brothers. They've come back. Slaughter the fatted calf is not what's said here, but it's close to it. And I think that at least part of the allusions in Jesus' parable, there are many Old Testament antecedents for everything Jesus says, but part of it I think we can see is this, that when things are reconciled, you have a feast and you make a big meal. 
I'm curious as to why they're going to do it at noon. Maybe that's just because it was the time of day, but why is attention called to it? Is it because the sun is at its height, and the sun is one of the gods of Egypt, and Joseph is trying to fool them still, that he's not ready to tell who he is? I don't know. Probably not. But maybe if I had taken the time to study out all the things that happened at noon in the Bible, we'd have a clue. You can do that. That's your job. That's your assignment. Next week, bring in a three-page paper on all the noontide events in the Bible. Well, the brothers think evil is intended. They can't believe that anything good is going to come out of this because there's been no explanation yet of the silver, and their hearts betray them. Then they get reassurance from the steward. The steward tells them it's all okay, and they find it hard to believe, but he's the one who tells them. And matching this, as we move out of the story later on, it'll be Pharaoh who tells them, rather, it'll be Joseph who tells them everything is okay. But now, they're not close enough for Joseph. Now, this story, at this point, has just a little bit of spatial aspect to it, so let me just set it up, and we can glance at it before we go. We have the house where the meal is going to be at these tables. And we also have the porch and the doorway into the house. And the events we're about to read happen before they come into the house. Verse 17 says, The man did as Joseph had said. The man brought the men into Joseph's house. Verse 18, The men were frightened that they had been brought into Joseph's house. Well, verse 19, they came close to the man, to the steward of Joseph's house, and spoke to him at the entrance of the house. So they're on the porch. I think verse 17, where it says the man did as Joseph said, the man brought the men into Joseph's house, that's a summary of what we're about to read. They will be brought into the house. Verse 18 probably needs to be read, they were frightened that they had been invited into his house, that they were going to be brought into his house, or that they were brought right up to the house, although we'll see that they haven't come in yet. There are some events that have to happen out here in the forecourt before they can come into the meal room. Where I'm going with this is, this is in a vague way parallel to the courtyard of the tabernacle where the altar is, where sin is confessed, and then you move into the house where the table of showbread is, and you have a meal with God, which is roughly the same thing we do in a worship service, where we come in, we confess our sins, we're forgiven, and then we're invited to come in and have a meal with the Lord. And this general structure of getting things cleaned up before you go into a meal, is just natural anyway. It's the way human beings are. If you and I have a tremendous amount of tension between ourselves You've probably had this experience. Maybe you haven't, but I have. There's somebody that you're in a real tense situation with because of something they've done or something you've done or some fight. In my case, it was always church fights. And they say, well, let's go out and have lunch. Well, you don't want to go out and have lunch with somebody like that. And you certainly don't want them to pay for it if you're in tension with them. Better to get the tension resolved than you can sit down and talk. So... There's tension here that has to be resolved before we can sit down and talk and eat. 
And just as this morning we confess our sins before we come in and God talks to us, we talk to Him and we eat. And just as that's the way it was in the rituals of the Old Testament, you take care of these problems out here at the doorway of the tabernacle, which is the whole forecourt. And then by implication, you can come in to where you can sit down at the table of showbread and have dinner with God. So that's the overall structure that we're going to read here. And the steward is going to reassure them. I'll read verses 19 to 23. They came close to the man, to the steward of Joseph's house. So both the steward and Joseph were called the man because they both have the same position in the narrative. And spoke to him at the entrance to the house, at the doorway, on the porch. They said, Please, my Lord, we came down before to buy food rations. But it came to pass. When we came to the night camp and opened our packs, there was each man's silver in the mouth of his pack, our silver by its exact weight. But here we have returned it in our hand, and other silver as well we have brought down in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put our silver in our packs. And he said, Steward said, It is well with you. Do not be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, placed a buried treasure in your packs for you. And your silver has come into me, and he brought Simeon out to them. So Simeon is brought out to them here, and then they all go in together. Okay, we're at the doorway of the house. And I've got down here all the stuff I just said. Compare the tabernacle in the courtyard. Confession is made and sin is forgiven. And then in the holy place is the table of bread. Our worship has the same structure. This is not a full confession because the brothers are not sufficiently mature in this situation to understand what is required. But it's enough to get them into the meal. The meal will reveal more to them and elicit further confession later on. And the same is true of the Lord's Supper. And what I'm trying to say there is we don't read, Oh, years ago we sold our brother into slavery. And for all we know, he's dead. And we've done all these horrible things, and we were accused of being spies. We really are spies, because we spied our brother, and we tried to kill him. And now, this, that, and the other. They don't make that full of confession. They're not mature enough to. They don't know who to say it to. They wouldn't know how to say it. They're not mature enough to make that kind of a confession. God is good to us in that He doesn't require us to confess all our sins before He saves us. Because we don't know our own sins, and we're not able to deal with them. We're not even able to express what they are. We're too afraid to. God deals with us by stages, bringing us to see more and more. I mean, if God showed me just how bad I really am, I'd probably have to blow my brains out right away. Wouldn't you? We have no idea how bad we really are. And so God gently shows us some things about ourselves, and we confess those things. And then when we're at the Lord's table, there's grace in the Lord's table. And in the sermon, the rest of the service serves to bring more things to our mind, and it makes us more mature. And that's the pattern that's going to be followed here. I'm not saying this is a type in some pure sense, but it's the same general pattern. There's this general confession of fear and reconciliation that's needed. And there's a slight amount of reconciliation it takes here. Simeon is brought out to him, and now the brothers are together again. That's not enough, but we're getting partway there. Then we come in, and sitting at the table, there's more tension. Not at the first meal they go to, but tension is set up, and then they're brought back into the house, and further 
confession and reconciliation has to take place. So that's how it is. And I've got down here that Simeon's being brought out to them in verse 23 is a sign that the confession has been accepted and peace restored at this level as we're moving through these stages of reconciliation and maturity here. Well, they explain the whole situation. We don't know who put the silver back in our packs. And then the steward, this Gentile, this Egyptian, he says, your God, the God of your father, put this treasure in your packs. He says, it's well with you. Don't be afraid. He speaks peace to them. He says, fear not, what Jesus says all the time. The steward assures them of God's favor to them. And as I've got down here, this reverses what should be the proper order. It should be the priestly people who are speaking peace to the nations. But here, it's the nations that are speaking peace to Israel. And of course, all of this, pointed out this a long time ago, but I'll just remind you of it, all of this is a type of what Paul says in the book of Romans. That Israel sins, God calls the Gentiles, the Gentiles minister to Israel, and then Israel is saved. So we have the same thing here. Israel has sinned. The gospel has gone to the Gentiles. These Egyptians have believed. And now these Gentile Egyptians are evangelizing the Jews, and the Jews are going to repent. So that's laid out here. And, of course, that pattern doesn't just leap from Joseph to Romans chapter 11. It's a sign to Israel throughout all the ages. If they sin... God will raise up Gentiles, and the Gentiles will evangelize them. And it happens in the Old Testament more than once. Uh-huh. Jim, would you comment on this phrase here, for your silver has come in? Yeah, I will. I've got it. So that's one thing here. The Gentiles are evangelizing the priestly people, and they don't say anything about God. <laughs> They don't say God returned our silver to us. We don't know why he did it, but here it is again. It's the steward who uses the word God. Just as Joseph stood before Pharaoh and said, God has shown Pharaoh what to do. God this, God that, and Pharaoh accepted it. Now it's the Egyptian who says, God this, God that. He says it to these Hebrews. He says he placed a treasure in your packs. The word there really means buried treasure. It was hidden, and you could even think that it was buried in their sacks. But God put something there that was hidden, and don't worry about it. And then he says, your silver has come into me, which means I'm receiving this. Don't be afraid. I'm not rejecting your silver. I'm not rejecting you. It's been brought in. It's been brought into the house. And we accept it. We accept the payment. Is that what you wanted to... I was just wondering if he was still kind of deceiving that. No, I don't think so. No, I think he means the new silver that they've just brought has been brought in. And we're not rejecting it. We're not saying, hey, we're not having anything further to do with you men. No, on the contrary, we receive your silver and we'll do business with you. Well, real quickly, let's finish this up because this will be the right place to end. Verse 24. Then the man, the steward, had the men come into Joseph's house. So now we come into the house and gave them water so that they might wash their feet and gave them fodder for their donkeys. So they were afraid for their donkeys, but now their donkeys are being fed. They're washing their feet. I think we compare the labor of cleansing in the tabernacle, which is just before entering the holy place where the table is set. That's where the priests wash their feet. 
And so, again, if we think of the tabernacle and the courtyard and the labor here, we've had some reconciliation take place at the altar, so to speak. And now, as we move into the house, we come to the labor and we wash our feet, and then we go to the meal. Jesus washes the disciples' feet just before he gives them the last meal. And it's a symbol of cleansing. So there's forgiveness, some type of reconciliation, and an initial type of cleansing. Also, you wouldn't pick this up, but the word spy is built on the word foot. And they were accused of being spies because that's what they are by nature. They're spies. They spied Joseph coming and they set out to kill him. And a spy wanders through the land with his feet. In Hebrew, the word spy is just a form of the word foot. And washing their feet in terms of deep structure is a way of washing away the accusation that they're spies. I don't know that they thought that way, but we can. We can see that they were accused of misusing their feet. Joseph accuses them of misusing their feet, of sinning with their feet. That's what a spy is, one who sins with his feet. And now they wash their feet, so washing away that sin is implied here. They prepared the gift until Joseph came back at noon. This is what the priest does. He prepares the gifts for God day by day. The brothers act as servants or priests to Joseph. They prepare this gift. They lay it all out. They understood that they were to eat bread there. And then when Joseph came into the house, they brought him the gift that was in their hand into the house and bowed down to him to the ground. Notice the repetition of into the house. The movement from doorway to interior of the house to the meal is important. Joseph came into the house. They brought him the gift that was in their hand into the house. And then they bowed down some. So now we're ready for the meal. We've gone through all the preliminaries. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.